Every year as we get ready for a new year, we try to give a little bit extra attention uh, to the very first series that we study together as a church. And we try to pay a lot of attention to all the series that we, we choose throughout the year. There are different reasons why we pick different series, but there's something different about the first one out of the gate as we turn the calendar to a new year. And I give a lot of thought on, on what I sense is really needed uh, culturally, uh, the world in which we live, and, and uh, for us as an individual church, what is kind of needed out there. And so I think I kind of really zero in maybe a little bit more for this series that we do in the first part of January. And this year, I chose a series called Done With Egypt. And I think you'll see as we go through this series, it lasts for four weeks, that every week has a vital message for the church as it is living in the world in which we're living in right now. And I just hope that you really kind of catch the importance of that as I'm talking about that that, that concept of us as a family, like we just talked about here, how do we keep being a family? How do we keep being effective and being what God wants us to be in the midst of the world in which we live? And so that's kind of the thought behind this concept of being done with Egypt. And you'll kind of catch the drift of that as I, as I get along today. Now, I want you to think, uh, I'm a football fan, so I remember a guy by the name of Bill Walsh. And Bill Walsh was a very successful football coach on all levels, high school and college and professional. He's probably most known for a 10-year stint that he had as the head football coach of the San Francisco 49ers. He won three Super Bowls in those 10 years with quarterback Joe Montana. That's probably one of the reasons why he won the Super Bowl. But Bill Walsh was known and kind of became famous for this idea of something called scripting. And what he meant by scripting was that before the game ever began, he lined out the first 25 offensive plays that they would run. So they knew every play they were going to run from play number one to play number 25, and he scripted that out, and it was unbelievably effective. It was incredibly effective. I wouldn't think something like that would work at all. You'd call the play according to the situation, not him. He scripted it out. He knew his plan. Now, I thought about that a little bit as I was preparing for our message today, and I figured out that, that if I were a coach going up against him, I know a proven way, an absolutely guaranteed proven way to defeat his scripting. And here's the plan. Just steal his playbook. Because if you had the playbook and you knew exactly what was coming, then you could set up your defense to avoid anything that they were going to do. You just got to find out the playbook. And in the month of January, I want to unfold for you Satan's playbook for every one of us that Satan also believes in a concept of scripting. And you're going to see today as we go back long, long ago that Satan lined out exactly how he would script the hope, the plan of coming after people who belong to God and weaken our faith and sometimes even destroy our faith. 
And I want that to hit you. I want it to kind of be, be really heavy with you. I want to make sure that you heard what I said. That once we come to Jesus, that once we are numbered in the family of God, and we saw a lot of people coming up here today, and a lot of people here, you've already done that years ago. And once you say, man, I'm in the game, I'm in this thing, the minute you do that, he begins to attack you. He has a scripted plan to weaken our faith and potentially even destroy your faith. And so you've come right now, and what I'm, what I'm suggesting to you is that he will never, ever, ever give up on trying to do that to us. Some of you will remember this verse from the New Testament where Peter said, be self-controlled and alert. That was his way of saying, now don't miss this. Your enemy, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. Listen, don't miss this. This was written to Christians. This was written to people in the game. This was written to people who are in the family. And what Peter was saying is keep your eyes open because there is a script out there. And that script has been written, carefully designed by the enemy to put a nick in your armor to weaken your faith. Everybody here is a target of that. And unfortunately, he's been incredibly successful throughout the years in that attack. And I think the reason is, is because we've never peeked into his playbook. And what you're going to do with me over the next month is we are going to dive into his playbook and we're going to see it come alive. And when you see it and know what's coming at you, then there's a sense that you're able to protect yourself from any attacks that he brings. Now, that playbook can be found. Of all places, it can be found very clearly by everybody in the home of Charlton Heston. Anybody know who Charlton Heston is? You young people are saying, is he a new rap singer out there somewhere? Charlton Heston. Well, not really in his home, but in the movie that he is most famous for, The Ten Commandments. And what we'll do this month is we will use the Bible more than the movie as our source of information, but you already know the story, okay? Most of us all know the story. Here are the people of God, the people of God known as the Israelites, the Jewish people. They have been held as slaves for over 400 years in Egypt, over 400 years, gang. That's all these people knew, bondage in Egypt. And then God determines it's time to rescue them from that and to remove them from Egypt, and watch this, to take them to a country, to take them to a land that is bountiful and beautiful, a land that will unbelievably be so much better than what is happening in Egypt. And the Bible itself, particularly in the book of Exodus, is the story of all these people who are bound as slaves in Egypt. We believe there was somewhere between several hundred thousand and two million of them about God deciding that we're gonna migrate them from Egypt to this new land. It was referred to often in the Bible as the promised land. It was literally the land of Canaan. If you looked on a globe today, it is the tract of land that you hear the Israelis and the Palestinians fighting over. God said, we're going to move you from Egypt and get you there. 
And a good portion of the book of Exodus is about that migration. So God says, it's time to do this. And you know the story. He raises up a man from among the Israelites named Moses. And he says, Moses, I want you, I want you to go to the leader of Egypt, known as the Pharaoh. And I want you to say to him that it is time to let our people go. And so Moses shows up to Pharaoh. And you know the story. The very first time we see him approaching the Pharaoh, here's what Moses said on behalf of God in chapter five. Let my people go so that they may hold a festival to me in the desert. And that command, that request of Moses is a little bit more detailed a few chapters later as he again approaches Pharaoh and he says, we must take a three-day journey. That's very important to see that here. A three-day journey into the desert to offer sacrifices to the Lord our God as he commands us. It is very clear. There's no doubt at all, Moses isn't allowing any form of confusion at all. He is saying, God wants us out of Egypt, out of Egypt. Everybody say that with me real loud right now. Out of Egypt, out of Egypt. And I don't know if Pharaoh got mad and yelled. We don't have any indication of what he did. I don't know if he fell off his throne in laughter. I don't know if he wet his pants in shock. But his answer was a resounding no. No. Now I understand that. If you're the leader of a nation that has held another nation captive for 400 years, and they all of a sudden say, hey, we think we're gonna take off, what do you think about that? No, you're not. Not on my watch, you're not. And so every once in a while, you see that happening, and God says, all right, you know the story. So if that's what you're gonna do, Pharaoh, I am going to begin to bring a series of awful plagues upon you for the purpose of pressuring you, putting you in a corner so that you will let my people go. And you know the story, don't you? Then the plagues start coming from God, pressuring Pharaoh, pressuring Egypt to let these people go. I find it interesting, it's really a fascinating thing as you dig into the playbook of the enemy that you start to see that some of the plagues started to pressure Pharaoh, and he started to give in a little bit. For example, if you've never seen this, it's kind of fascinating. The second plague was this, this team of incredible numbers of frogs. The Bible says that when the frogs showed up in Egypt, they were everywhere, man. It said they were in homes, they were in bedrooms, they were in kitchens, and just kind of start wrapping your head around. I don't know if you're a frog person or not, okay? But even if you're a frog person, you're not a frog person like this, okay? You can't sleep at night because they're crawling all over you under the sheets and you finally can't take any more and you get out in the morning and you're walking in the bedroom and you're just stepping on them and squishing them all over and you go down in the kitchen because you're gonna have breakfast and you open the, the refrigerator door and they just kind of jump out at you and you grab your box of Fruit Loops for some cereal and they just are falling out the box. And that apparently is exactly what's happening with Pharaoh. 
And why is that so awful? Because God says, man, I'm going to pressure you. And finally, Pharaoh, he can't take it anymore. It's only the second plague, and he's finally ready to give in. And he calls Moses in. And Moses comes, and he says to Moses, okay, okay, you win. If you've never read it, here's what he said. Check this out. Pray to the Lord to take the frogs away from me and my people, and I will let your people go to offer sacrifices to the Lord. You've done it, God. I'll let it happen. Now, this is beautiful what happens right here, because I think Moses wanted to slam dunk it, okay? He should have took the meat right there, but he wanted to slam dunk it, and he said this. He said, okay, I'll tell you what, Pharaoh, just so that you know how powerful God is, you tell me when you want the frogs gone, and it'll happen right then. Watch how Moses said it. I love this. I leave to you the honor of setting the time for me to pray for you and your officials and your people that you and your houses may be rid of the frogs. When do you want the frogs gone? This is one of the most amazing, mind-blowing moments in the whole Bible. Pharaoh, when do you want the frogs gone? You know what he said? Here's what he said. Tomorrow. Tomorrow? How about right now? Huh? Wouldn't you say that? Why tomorrow? And what happened with Pharaoh is that softening didn't last very long. And he changed his mind and said, no, you are not going to go. You're not going to go. And so God says, okay, some more plagues. And then the plagues start happening. And this is when his playbook shows up. Because we start seeing moments where the pressure is so heavy on Pharaoh that he starts to weaken, he starts to soften, and he gets really close to telling them to go. And here's how he does it. He offers them compromises. Don't miss that. If you are a child of God, if you love Jesus, if you're a part of the family of God, if this is what you choose to be a part of in your life, do not miss this because what we're being told is that Satan, our enemy, has a scripted plan to weaken us and the way he does it is with specific compromises. The reason that I chose this particular series of messages in January is my fear that many of us in the kingdom of God have bought the compromises. And as we start to work our way through them in January, there are four in particular that come up. And I want to take one each week. I'm going to show you how it happened in the Exodus text and then I want to boldly ask you if it has happened to you yet. The very first compromise out of the gate happens with the flies. It's the fourth, it's the fourth plague that comes up, and our Bibles call it a swarm of flies. Now, those who get deep down into the meat of the text and study it, probably deeper than most of us would, kind of doubt that it was our understanding of what a fly is. Now, me personally, I have no problems with flies, okay? They're not like my pets. I don't name them or anything, but I have no issue with flies. I mean, they can, you know, it's their place too. They can cruise around if they want. No, my wife is different. 
If there's a fly in her house, it is her expectation that I cease doing whatever I'm doing and hunt it down until its demise has occurred. If you want to know what the fly was in the fourth plague, it is closer to my wife's view of the fly. The Hebrew word literally means a swarm of flying insects. So they might have been flies, they might have been other types of different things, they might have been all kinds of a myriad of different insects that were flying, but I want you to know what they did as they flew. The psalmist was writing about this years later, recounting the power that God used in the plagues. And notice what the psalmist wrote about the flies. He, referring to God, he sent flies that ate them and frogs which bedeviled them. Now, I get the bedeviled thing. That means drive you crazy, okay? The frogs would drive you insane. But the flies ate you. Those are some bad dog flies, aren't they, huh? And so here the flies are happening, and Pharaoh can't take it anymore. He's absolutely had it, just like with the frogs. Now the flies are more than he can possibly handle, and he calls Moses back in, and he's going to give up. Moses, take off. I can't deal with it anymore. Get rid of the flies. But he secretly does it with a compromise. See if you can catch what the compromise is. Pharaoh said this to him. He summoned Moses and Aaron and said, Go! Sacrifice to your God here in the land. Anybody see that? If you want to worship your God, worship your God. If you want to sacrifice to your God in worship, go ahead and do it but I want you to do it here. I want you to serve and worship your God while you are in Egypt. We are seeing at this moment what I believe to be one of the firm primary compromises that the devil will throw at the people of God. And here it is. Go ahead and become a part of the kingdom of God. Go ahead and believe in Jesus. Go ahead and be baptized. Go ahead and join a church. Hang out with Christian people. Do Christian thing. But while you do all of that stuff, make sure that you hold on to the values of the world here in Egypt. The compromise can be understood this way. Put one foot in the promised land, but make sure you keep one foot in Egypt. I have a deep, deep concern, not only about my own life, but about the kingdom of God on the whole in the world in which we live today, that we Christians have accepted that compromise. It's play one of the devil. Go ahead and be a Christian, but hold to the world's values. Accept the world's standards. Hold on to the world's 
church beliefs. See, go ahead and, and do your thing on Sunday or Thursday. Go ahead and do your thing, but all the other days live like the rest of the world. Put your little Jesus bumper sticker on your car for everybody to see, but if they cut you off in traffic, let them know how loud your horn can be. Sing those worship songs that Aquila and Justin love to teach us, but balance it out with the latest movie sprinkled with filth. Greet everyone at church with a smile and a warm welcome, and then get on social media and rudely attack anybody who has a different political perspective than you might have. One foot in the promised land and one foot in Egypt, and it is a tactic that has weakened millions in God's army. Has it potentially weakened you? as I do in every message that I preach, and I hope that you honor this. I try, and I, I mean this, I try every message that I preach to preach first to me. And so I thought about that. And I thought about my life in Christ, and I've got way less life left than the life that I've already spent, and I've asked myself, do I have a foot in the promised land and Egypt? Am I keeping a foot in Egypt? I started thinking through that, and I remembered early in my Christian life, Larry and Brian, two uh, dear friends of mine, old friends now, who influenced me a great deal as a teenager. And if you're a teenager in this room, we've got a, a number of you, or if you've got kids that are teenagers, I want you to hear this that I was one of the lucky, crazy kids who got caught up with a bunch of Christians. And so I had all kinds of Christian buddies, and I didn't grow up in that. I didn't have any of that. That was all new to me. And it was so refreshing to see a different life, a different kind of a world in which they lived in, and I, I longed for that. And there were many of those who had great impact on me, maybe none more than Larry and Brian. They were bold enough to make sure that I understood that coming to Jesus meant a total break from Egypt. Now think about that. I honestly believe that I got on a trajectory that led me to where I am today in my life in Christ because when it began, when I was a teenager, there were several people, two of which I'm telling you about right now, who were bold enough to remind me at the beginning of the game, now listen Dave, this is out of Egypt. We don't deal with Egypt anymore. It was March the 7th when I was baptized. I was 15 years old on that day when the baptism was over with. A lot of my friends were there. We left that church. We went to a little school down by where my house was, Oaklawn Grade School. They had an outdoor basketball court there, and we started playing basketball. Me and all my friends, we were out there and I'd been baptized just a couple hours earlier. We were doing that game, if many of you have done, where if your team wins, you stay. If your team loses, you gotta sit and wait for the next game. And my team had lost, and I'd sitting over here on the, the ground, I was back up against the school building, and a lot of my friends were around and stuff, and I had a, had a friend come down and sit next to me, and he was from the non-Jesus crowd. Y'all with me, huh? Anybody with me, okay? And he sat down with me, we're 15. And he pulled out a pack of cigarettes. I have no idea where in the world he would have got it. And he opened up a cigarette and he put it in his mouth and he lit it. And I never got into that. I never, ever got into that. Although I experimented with it a little bit. 
And he said, you want one? I said, yeah, man, I'll take one. And I put it in my mouth and I lit it. I'm 15 years old, got baptized a couple hours ago. And Larry, 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 one of the guys that had the greatest impact on me, incredible for Christ. Larry was playing because his team was still winning and he saw me and he said, time out. We're 15. And he walked over to me and he said, dude, what in the world are you doing? You just got baptized, man. Being baptized and that don't go together. And nobody ever told me that. Nobody ever told me that the expectation of God is that you leave Egypt when you go to the promised land. You leave Egypt completely. I don't know how much longer it was. It probably wasn't any more than maybe a week or two. I was in high school, and, or I was in school that day, and we were sitting in class, and one of my other buddies had great impact on me coming to Christ by the name of Brian. He's sitting in the, the desk right behind me, and we're just talking in class, doing different stuff, and I'm talking to a kid in front of me, and I used a word that would not be used at a church youth group. Y'all with me? Okay? Okay? Whatever. I don't even know what it was, but I used a word that I wasn't supposed to use, okay, apparently as a Christian. I didn't know that. Brian grabbed me by the, the shoulder. He said, dude, what are you doing? I said, get off me, man. What are you doing? He said, are you, are you so dumb, man, that that's all the words you got? Does one talk like that? I said, dude, everybody talks like that. He said, we don't. We don't. And those were two guys that believed in me and loved me enough as, as just buddies, man, 15-year-old buddies, that they wanted me to know that when you come to Jesus, when you go to the promised land, you have to make sure that you abandon Egypt, that you don't keep feet in Egypt. And I'm not sure that we've been bold enough in our kingdom work, that we've been honest with people about that, that that is his strategy to you. And whether you've been a Christian your whole life, and now you're on the other end of it, kind of like where I'm at, or you're just starting, you're a young person, I want you to hear this, that the devil's number one strategy is to let you do your Christian thing, but keep a foot in Egypt. And you're the only one who can answer it. But as you follow Jesus, as you go about in your journey, have you ever noticed that it seems that I got a part of me still hanging back there. Maybe a strained relationship where you are refusing to offer forgiveness. That might indicate a foot still in Egypt. Maybe it's a refusal to accept a particular moral stance that God clearly explains in his word because it's different than the accepted modern culture today. That, that might indicate a foot that's still planted back in Egypt. Maybe it's something regularly chosen as that's a higher priority than gathering with God's people to worship. That is a foot still in Egypt. Maybe it's turning a blind eye to somebody less fortunate who needs something that you need right now. That's, that's probably a foot in Egypt. It might be a habit or a form of entertainment that harms the integrity of your testimony. And you just, you just hang in there with that habit because that foot is probably still in Egypt. You might thrive on a negative or critical attitude. You might be one of those Christians who say your spiritual gift is seeing the fault in other people. That is a foot in Egypt. And the powerful, challenging 
question that we all got to wrestle through as we start this year is have I bought that compromise and I didn't know it? Now go ahead and worship. Go ahead, go ahead. But do it here in Egypt. One foot in the promised land, one foot still in Egypt. And I thought about that. I began to realize when I wrote this message how many times Jesus said the same thing. More than we have time, but just kind of glance at a few of them. Matthew chapter six. No one can serve two masters. Either he will hate the one and love the other, or he'll be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot live in the promised land in Egypt at the same time. Jesus said you just can't do it. John chapter 8, many of us remember the words of Jesus. He said, then neither do I condemn you. Grow, go now and leave your life of sin. And he said that to a lady in the throngs of horrendous uh, adultery and sexual ramification. And he looked at her and we, we, we praise the text of John 8 because Jesus didn't condemn her. And if that's all you saw in the story, then you've missed the whole story. What's the last thing that he said to her? You cannot stay in Egypt. You can't stay there. Revelation chapter 3 the Laodicean church, commanded by Christ. I know your deeds. You're neither cold nor hot. Now watch this. I wish that you were one or the other. He goes on. So because you're lukewarm, neither hot nor cold, I'm about to spit you out of my mouth. Did you catch what Jesus said? He said, I'd rather you, watch this, I'd rather you just stay completely in Egypt than be half in the promised land and half in Egypt. You can't leave your feet there. And so the question to take home and to be serious with is what part of Egypt have you hung on to? And until that is identified and dealt with, the enemy uses it to weaken us and potentially, eventually devour our faith. I don't know if you remember the old silly story about the teenage girl asked her mom if she could go to a movie that night with some of her friends. And mom said, well, tell me a little bit about the movie. And so she started telling her a little bit about the movie. And mom finally said, well, are there any bad words in the movie? And she said, yeah, you know, just a little, just a little, not a whole lot, just a little bit. And she goes, well, any, any sex scenes in there? Mom, you're embarrassing me. Are there any, any of that? And she goes, I don't know, probably just, a, you know, a little insinuation, just a little stuff in there. And she said, you know what, I'll tell you what. I'll tell you, I'll make a deal with you. She goes, I'm going to let you go. You can go to the movie, but I need you to do something for me first. She goes, I've been working on this new recipe. I'm going to make these brownies, and I'm going to put them together this afternoon, and I'm going to put them all together, and I just need somebody to be honest with me and try them and tell me, do you like them? Because I need somebody really to be straight front with it. And if you'll test my brownies, you can go to the movie. She goes, okay, okay, okay. So she gets ready for the movie. She starts cooking. They get down in the kitchen, and mom's cutting it real carefully, and she pulls out a little square, and it's warm, and she hands it to her daughter, and her daughter puts it on the napkin, and she goes right like this, and mom says, hold on, hold on, hold on. Before you bite that, I want you to know. I put just a little, little bit of dog poo in there. And when we stay in Egypt, 
even if it's just a little bit, we eat that all day, every day, and our faith is weakened. So the question is, do you still have a foot left in Egypt? Father, I thank you that you call me to rise high. I thank you that you don't allow me to stay at levels where the devil can grab me very easily. I thank you that you forgive me. I thank you that you comfort me. I thank you that you accept me at times when I'm not very lovable. I thank you that your grace never runs dry and that your mercy is higher than anybody who's ever merciful. I thank you for all of that. But I thank you just as much that you do not allow me to stay in Egypt without confrontation. I pray this will be something that we will think about for a few days and that you'll be honored at our response. And I pray that today in the name of Jesus. Amen.